Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. These words are from Second Peter 3. It's a common Google search response to the question, How then shall we live? Hi, my name is Dan Dick, and welcome to Church Matters. We live in a time of deep partisanship and division, clashing cultures of all kinds and fractured relationships. There is the real danger of chaos at the end of this road. Marcus Rempel, in his upcoming book, Life at the End of Us Versus Them, offers a stark warning and extends a helping hand to those grasping for a way out. Marcus is a self-described dirt farmer and a voracious reader of theology and philosophy. He's a cultural sleuth with deep investigative interest in contemporary anthropology. Through the lens of Christian faith, he unearths the ethical, spiritual, and practical mechanics of peaceful living in community with people of diverse faith and cultural backgrounds. Life at the End of Us versus Them is a timely book that draws on his life experience and reflects on the question, How Then Shall We Live? Welcome to Church Matters, Marcus. Thanks, Dan. In just a few words, what's the main thesis of your book? We live in a time when no community that has a clear distinction between outsiders and insiders can remain intact, whether that's churches, whether that's nations, whether that's families. And what I've learned is that it's really Jesus that got us into this mess, and it's Jesus who can get us out. Marcus, who is this book for? In a sense, I wrote this book for one person, which is my brother Daniel. Growing up, we were very, very close, and faith did not make sense to Daniel. Daniel's a very bright guy, a very high level of what I would call intellectual honesty. And if it doesn't make sense to him, then out with it. He ended up leaving the church, and that was painful for him and it was painful for me. And in a sense, the emotional core of the book is really all the conversations that I wish I could have with him, but that we can't, because they're too triggering for each other. We've wrestled with many of the same excellent questions but we've come out in different places. And it's very hard for us to have a conversation that doesn't become kind of existentially threatening to the other. And so when Facebook conversations were sort of getting out of hand, I pulled back from that and I started writing this book. So was this book an act of love for your brother? Clumsy, probably, in the end. I. <laughs> This week has been a particularly interesting week between us, and, and in some ways I feel like wearing a t-shirt that says, I set out on a journey to get my brother back, and all I got was this lousy book. As it turns out, even if we have things to say that are true, we can still wound each other with the truth. And in the end, that's probably not how we go about the ministry of reconciliation. You said Jesus got us into this mess and Jesus will get us out. What mess did Jesus get us into? So an alternate title of the book was Scapegoats and Samaritans. 
And I left that to the side because I didn't want to alienate people with those immediate biblical references. But to start with Jesus' story of the, the Good Samaritan, that story is really a story about there's this lawyer that asks the question, who is my neighbor? The lawyer thinks he's asking a question about who do I have obligations toward? And instead, Jesus tells him a story about who is going to save you. Because, of course, the, the man in the ditch, beaten and wounded, is a Jew, like the lawyer asking the question. And the one who ultimately becomes a friend and a savior is the one whom the Jew considers a heretic, a blasphemer, an outsider, someone who is contaminated, someone whose you know, contact is, is threatening and polluting. And that's the one who saves the Jew. That's an amazing story. But Dan, how in the world do you build a stable community that knows who's in and who's out? based on a story like that. You can't possibly. So for one very contemporary example, the Mennonite church right now is in a conversation about the standing of people who are sexually other. People who for a long time we've considered outsiders, contaminating, impure, etc. I think the reason we're asking ourselves hard questions about maintaining that stance is because of those kind of scandalous stories that Jesus left us with that, that make us perennially uncertain if we take them seriously about the idea that we are the ones who are sitting in the place of righteousness and that those outside our circle are the ones who are somehow wrong and, and an abomination. Because Jesus himself becomes that person for the community. Back to the, the image of the scapegoat. We've never really known how to be an us that wasn't somehow over against a them. And the way I've come to read the story of Jesus' crucifixion is really Jesus coming to our community and saying, if you need somebody to be that guy, I'll be that guy. You want to reject someone? You want to make somebody bad so you can be good? You want to make somebody your enemy so you can be friends? I'll be that guy. And not be destroyed by it. And now we can maybe learn a new game. You draw heavily on a pair of Christian philosopher historians named Ivan Illich and Rene Girard. Do your readers have to know their work to appreciate your book? No. A big reason why I wrote the book is that I feel like I'm just smart enough to read these guys and get the, the essence of what they're on about. But they're not easy to read uh, and not fun to read unless you're really kind of a the theology anthropology nerd. But they had this, this, this stuff that speaks right into the essence of the gospel for me as a believer that I wanted to be able to make accessible to other people. The title of the book, Life at the End of Us Versus Them, points to a world of hyper-opinionated judgment of folks who are not like ourselves. And I know I've had some of these conversations myself with other folks. It seems sometimes we're at an unredeemable impasse. Why do we find these other people we disagree with so threatening? I think I have a couple answers. 
One has to do with the arena in which we're having those questions. One of the things that I learned from Illich is that the Christian sense of sin is not about the violation of a code, but the Christian understanding of sin is about the betrayal of a relationship. Now, a lot of those conversations that you're referencing are happening either in the disembodied, anonymous cyberspace, or maybe not entirely different uh, on the floor of a conference room where people walk up to a microphone, sit back down again. Illich was always inviting people to sit around a candle, pouring some wine. He actually got uh, the IRS granted him tax-free status for the wine he bought as part of his teaching materials. He was interested in creating this space where we sit across the table from each other and first agree to be friends. And from there, we go out and seek the truth together. And he brings this back to the Samaritan. The Samaritan and the Jew have no codified basis on which to be friends. But the Samaritan decides to be a friend before they've come to any agreement on their scriptures, their, their ethics, etc. And out from there comes the new community, the new revelation of truth. I wonder about how we do communion. My mother tells me that her mother used to tell her that the practice in the community around communion used to be that communion was, was, was held rarely and only when everyone in the community was really reconciled. And the way the community would test that was, if I knew that you and I, Dan, had had some kind of difference, and I wasn't sure where that was at, I would send to your house, maybe with one of my kids, a jar of borscht. And if you send that jar of borscht back to my house empty, you had eaten the borscht that we'd prepared. Well, then we knew everything was good. If you sent the jar of borscht back full, then I knew we had some work to do. And the community only has communion when all the jars of borscht are coming back empty and clean. That is about overcoming sin as it has to do with relationship in the community. Now, if we're not going to do that, and maybe we can't do that anymore, I wonder about communion more frequently and not with the assumption that you and I have made things right before we approach the table, but with the assumption that none of us is worthy to approach the table of Jesus, but that Jesus is welcoming us into his feast where we find ourselves sat down with the ones that we considered our enemies. I mean, Jesus' disciples are zealots and Pharisees and tax collectors by background, all people who were at each other's throats in the Jewish extended community. And Jesus welcomes them all, and it's his love and his banquet that creates the place that the conversation moves out from. How can we relate to those others when they seem resolutely intractable? 
I hesitate to answer that question in the way you've posed it because it's already posing the problem as the other as resolutely intractable. Girard puts incredible emphasis on the teaching of Jesus about this, the block in my eye versus the speck in my neighbor's eye. Even if the truth is on my side, I can be using the truth in a violent way. I can be hurting my brother with the truth. Back to the conversation about sexuality, I personally am strongly on the affirmation side of the question that the church is wrestling with. And I, I'm really convinced that that's the right place to be. I can still use that truth to treat someone else as a quote-unquote hater, as someone who is intractable, someone who is the problem. You know, if we could only get rid of this problem person, then the conversation could move forward. Well, now we're just scapegoating the other way around. I mean, this is the thing about this, this insight about the scapegoat is once you see it, once you become convicted of it, you can't look anywhere and not see it. And always, as a Christian, it should come back to how am I complicit in the scapegoating? That's when I'm doing my spiritual work, not when I'm, not when I'm pointing at you for scapegoating someone else. It just, you know, it just becomes the same thing of, of the next level up. At one point, you write that Christianity is the mother of science. I'm intrigued by that bold statement. Can you unpack that for me? That bold claim actually comes from René Girard. Girard says that we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches. Now, what in the world does he mean by this? What he's talking about is that in Europe, people who had been living with the gospel for a long time were still, like all humans do, were still scapegoating their neighbors. And the, the kind of most violent and prominent version of scapegoating was witch burning. So if the crops fail, if babies are dying in the community, there must be a witch. And we'll kill the witch, we'll burn the witch. And if next year the crops are good and the births are successful, well, it must have worked. She must really have been a witch. Well, if you live with the story of Jesus and his crucifixion, generation after generation, you can't help but start to be dissatisfied with the witch-burning theory of how we deal with our problems. Because the burning of the witch looks an awful lot like the crucifixion of Jesus. And so you start to have doubts about those things, and you start to need other explanations for why the crops are burning, why the babies are dying. And you start to question the authorities who have been managing this whole witch-burning uh, system as, as purveyors of absolute truth. And so you start to get Galileos popping up in the culture that say things that are different from what the authorities have been saying all along. And when the religious authorities respond by trying to drive a Galileo out of the community, well, once again, that looks an awful lot like what we did with Jesus. And so... It's not that Christians and Westerners stop 
scapegoating. We just we just do it less and less effectively with with a, with pangs of conscience. And over time that breaks down that system and it it creates a space where another truth that isn't coming from that authority blame religious system that truth gradually becomes ascendant in the culture now of course you can arrive at the place where that becomes the new priesthood and the church becomes the new scapegoat there's a lot of that going on today i would like to acknowledge that there are science uh, streams from other cultures that are vital in the history of the development of science the chinese uh, for one example, Islam, for another example. But what I'm really talking about is a culture where, where science becomes ascendant, where it becomes an alternate authority system that is able to depose the other system of truth, which is this more hierarchical religious system. That never happens fully in China uh, nor in Islam. So we create scapegoats with regret, but we don't change our behavior about creating scapegoats. Well, we do imperfectly. I think we have been getting somewhere. I do see progress, but Girard talks about the times we're living in where both the best and the worst are increasingly revealed. Now, there's wonderful things that we, we've accomplished. I mean, people with disabilities, for example, are treated, you know, as members of the community in a way that's much more humane. But on the other hand, you know, we have, we've been able to invent the atom bomb, and we've been able to invent these increasingly insidious forms of, of evil that in some ways are more totalitarian because this, this juggernaut of, of technology, of power, of this sense of moral superiority that the West has becomes a system that can put its tentacles you know, deep into the f furthest jungles of the world. And so that's very dangerous. So good and bad are flourishing incredibly at the same time. It's been said that Christians should read scripture with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. What should be in the other hand of those reading your book? I would hope that this book becomes a doorway where the reader can take the Bible back in the other hand. In some ways, I'm writing this book for people who've put the Bible away because Illich and Gerard really gave me a way to put the Bible back in my hands in a way that was life-giving. And there are lots of good reasons why people have put the Bible away. There's stuff in there that is very dangerous. It's so dangerous that it was used to crucify Jesus. The people who crucified Jesus all had the Bible in their hands. He's a blasphemer, they said. And then Jesus miraculously turns that around. I needed help to see how Jesus turned that around. And that really let me take the Bible back in my hand in a way that it wasn't a hand grenade anymore and was an opening to truth and healing. Girard especially uh, just gave me a love for the Bible that in some ways I had 
lost. One of, one of Girard's disciples, a theologian named James Allison, uh, writes a chapter in one of his books called Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Book? Because that's really the place that a lot of us have arrived uh, as moderns in our relationship to the Bible. I've really been helped to arrive maybe at a, at a similar place to those disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walks with them and visits with them. And as the scripture says, reveals the meaning of scripture as they had carried it for all that time as coming to its fulfillment at the cross. Something that the community had understood in a certain way for a long, long time becomes revealed in a very new and fresh way when Jesus becomes the scapegoat, when we have to start reading back into the Old Testament. For example, some of those really troublesome, violent passages that critics of Christianity rightly put before us and say, how can you believe in this God who says, wipe out these other people, put them all to the edge of the sword? When you read a story like that, who in the story looks like Jesus? Who's getting crucified in the name of religion, in the name of protecting the purity of the community? Ah, that story makes an about face after the revelation of Jesus and becomes not, not a scandal anymore of, of barbarism, but for me, a marker of, wow, Jesus took us from there and took that whole story and brought it to this place of telling that story about the Samaritan where where my enemy becomes the one who saves me. And God is revealed as the one with whom I was living as an enemy. And while we were yet enemies, as Paul says, God saves me. When I, when I hear those violent scriptures now, I just, I'm blown away. Every, every people has those stories about those were the bad guys. We were the good people. Our, you know, our God was on our side. We wiped them out. I mean, that, that's all over the place. And somehow, by a miracle, by the resurrection, there's the only way I can fathom or, or that, that, that I can make a connection between that history and, and what Jesus does. We arrive someplace very new and get to walk in newness of life with Jesus, who knows that that's where we come from and use that, that aspect of who we are, that, that's, that, that violent human tendency to scapegoat and use that to reveal God's love to us. It's incredible. There is an unrelenting connection between love and ethics in your book. Must one come before the other? Well, Illich would say yes. What would Jesus say? Jesus' cross reveals Jesus' love for us, for the whole community, in its moment of betrayal. The, dis the disciples have suspended all their ethics, have forgotten everything that they learned in the years that Jesus was traveling with them, at the moment when he is crucified and they all, right down to Peter, betray him. And Jesus' love is that resurrection life, is that force out from which radiates the redemption, 
the new life of that community. Back to me and my brother or other conversations that just seem to be going nowhere and nowhere and nowhere. If we feel like we have to get the rules right before we can love each other, we're never going to get there. How do you think your brother Daniel will receive this book? My, my brother and I, we used to have sword fights as boys. And I often was the one who would say, hey, let's have a sword fight. And, uh, and then we'd get sticks out and bang away at each other. And I was, of course, two years older and a little bit bigger. And, and inevitably, I would uh, end up bashing him on the knuckles. Uh, and after a while, he decided he didn't want to do that game with me anymore. The book feels similar to me in that that way of engaging as boys, I mean, it came out of a, a love for my brother. I wanted to play with him. I, I have to confess that I can't separate out my desire to, like, dominate him, win the fight, uh, put him in his place, uh, is, is hiding in all those essays uh, that are uh, dismantling piece by piece the kind of perfectly uh, empirically based, rationality based skepticism that wants to wipe religion off of the map. Uh, I mean, that's in the back of my head as I'm writing, and I'm both wanting to give this gift of love and I'm wanting to win the argument. That's almost preemptive speculation against him reading it. Well, we've had some conversations. I, I, he's read a little bit, and uh, it, it was triggering. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sensitive dynamic between us that is not finished. You know, even, even this week, I just I had to realize again something that I had said that was just hurtful. It was on Facebook. It wasn't, but it was, I was really, I was pulling out one of my arguments that I'd sorted out, you know, writing the book uh, and, and kind of sideswiped him with it. And in a, in a moment when he was sharing an idea he was excited about and just really wanted to share that excitement. And I, I instead took that as an opportunity, you know, I saw that he was open uh, for a sucker punch that I knew how to give because I studied it up pretty pretty hard in, in, in writing a certain chapter. It might have been true, but it was cruel. So we're not done, and, and I'm not done taking the two-by-four out of my own eyeball. When will Life at the End of Us versus Them be available to readers? So I just signed my contract with Friesen Press. Uh, on average, it takes them about five months, they tell me. Um, my life is going to start getting busy soon with farming. I'm planning to be ready to hit the ground running in the fall in terms of book launches and, and speaking uh, in church basements, etc. I'd love to, if you have folks that would like to invite me, I'd, I'd love to sit with people and, and talk about some of these things. If people want to pre-order, they can go to kickstarter.com. Uh, and look up either Marcus Peter Rempel or Life at the End of Us versus Them, uh, and, uh, and they can pre-order the book there and, and support the launch. 
And I know that my colleague Arlen Friesen Epp hopes to have the book at the Common Word Bookstore and Resource Center as well, so folks could also get it there. Yeah, indeed. And I think we're going to do a book launch there too. Thanks so much for joining me today, Marcus. Best wishes on your publishing adventure. Thanks, Dan. That concludes my interview with Marcus Rempel, author of Life at the End of Us Versus Them. You're invited to join me again in just four weeks for another episode of Church Matters. We're here for you at 8.45 a.m. on the third Sunday of every month. We love to hear from our listeners, whether it's by email, phone, or snail mail. Tell us what's on your mind via churchmatters at mennonitechurch.ca or mail us at 600 Shaftesbury Boulevard, Winnipeg, Manitoba, R3P0M4. We're happy to receive your phone calls and always appreciate your financial support. Call 1-866-888-6785 or visit mennonitechurch.ca and click on the donate link. I'm your host, Dan Dick. Know that you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.